New game day shirt? Boom. Cash back. Food for the tailgate? Boom. Cash back. Even buying a round can earn you cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, I said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who is taking the win, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees, period? I'm telling you, this one, it's a real game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. everybody to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Today, we've got six U.S. soccer-centric listener questions to answer. We're talking best hairstyles, Jesse Marsh's strengths and weaknesses, best Americans in the Premier League, and much, much more. To do so, to answer those, I'm joined by two friends. Up first, a man who, if I'm understanding his update correctly, owns a laminating machine. It's Joe Lowry. Joe, is that the premise behind the new backyard column? Different thicknesses, different glosses, that sort of thing? You know, we're, we're getting really into laminating this year, Taylor. I think it's satisfying. You know, it's a good way to protect, prote- protect excuse me, uh-huh. I talk for a living, uh, my office supplies, right? Any sort of paper that you need. Lam- no, that's not, that's not really what we're doing, nor do I own a laminator. But Anthony Precourt, it seems like, does because he <laughs> laminated a set of predictions from folks all around the MLS media landscape last year surrounding Austin FC season where we were all wrong about how good Austin FC were going to be. So congrats to them retroactively. But we do have a regular column on Backfield now with predictions every week that's called Laminated. So I might not own one, Taylor, but at least someone does. I mean, Anthony Precourt owning a laminating machine feels on brand. I appreciate that he went alphabetical. Uh, for a moment, I thought he just ranked uh, Charlie Bohm number one in his estimations, which would have had you near the bottom. But no, you know, uh, it, it is alphabetical. Uh, it is a lovely column. Joe, I'm excited for your uh, for, for the for the predictions of the rankings to for you to be uh infuriating fan bases left and right this season. Yeah, I led this column with the U.S. won't win the World Cup this year, which Uh I don't assume will be a crowd pleaser, but... I mean, you got to take the field in a situation like that. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to attempt to pull punches when I think that that thing will happen, and I, I think it's going to be an uphill battle. All right, when Vlatko produces his laminated thing that says Joe predicted us not to win, <laughs> when they win, uh, we will be here to cover it. Uh, joining us is a man who recently wrote a column about Chelsea's January signings. And while the piece itself was great, the photo used for the thumbnail was even better. Graham Muffin, was it your choice uh, to, or your editors to use a photo of Graham Potter that made it look like he's deciding if he needs to pass gas or if it's something slightly <laughs> more serious? I think that's just his general demeanor at, at the moment. It's I think so every picture of him looks like that at the moment, given how Chelsea are, are going. I actually haven't. This is this is a peep behind the curtain and maybe the freelance lifestyle. I don't think I've clicked on my own link there to see what picture it is. Oh, but yeah, I have I'm seen it in the Slack pitch. right now. Here you go. Yeah, thank it you. I don't know what Slack it looks like in the Americans in Action channel. Just tell me he's oh, not like. Yeah. Oh, this could be a problem. <laughs> Yeah, that he is. Yeah, and that looks like the start of the start of his time as Chelsea manager. He is smelling trouble right there. Is what he's doing. Oh, you're right. It is because he's still he's got the turtleneck on. He still looks put together. Yeah, he's Uh, that's the the Calvin Harris glow up right there, and that lasted maybe three matches, and now he looks worse than that. How is it that he looks like those before and after uh, photos of soldiers from World War One? How does he look that haggard and depleted already into his Chelsea tenure? (laughs) 
That's what Chelsea does to you. That's what Todd Bowley does to you. That's oh. just because he has to memorise all those names. He doesn't even know the names of people in his dressing room have, anymore. Have Have you guys seen the before and after of Graham Potter? Of you know, it's a picture. Was yeah. I can't remember if this was in our Slack or if this is on Twitter. But if listeners haven't seen it, it's a picture of Graham Potter before he took the job or right in his first game, and then one recently in the bags under the eyes and the stress that this it's man wild. has undergone in such a short period of time has clearly taken a toll. It's it's unbelievable. Like bordering on what I would assume is an unhealthy lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel for Graham Potter, just yeah. as Potter's and, trying to feel himself in that in that picture. And looking at that picture, Joe and Taylor, maybe you felt the same way as as uh, as fathers of young children, both <laughs> of us, just thinking can sympathise. Yeah, that's yep. how I look as well yeah. <laughs> for different reasons. Like, but yeah, yeah. If if you were just to say like, oh yeah, this is like the stress of Chelsea, I'd be like, wow, that's a really difficult position he's in. And then if you said, oh, and he also has a toddler, I'd be like, oh, well then that's normal. Never mind. No, no problems <laughs> yeah. here. That's just normal. That's uh, just the stress of a toddler parent. wanting to watch Peppa Pig at 4 a.m. every exactly. morning. Oh, yeah. My daughter on the way to daycare screamed at me because uh, though she didn't want to buckle herself in halfway through the journey, she did and then insisted that I pull over. It was a whole thing. Between that and yesterday, as I posted on Instagram, her getting mad at me for eating the piece of waffle that she fed me. Uh, it, it's mm. been an interesting time. Toddlers are Counts. fun. Let's not talk about children. Let's talk about <laughs> listener questions, shall we? As I said in the intro, we've got several listener questions for you today. Tuesday has sort of become our U.S. soccer-centric listener question episode, at least for now, uh, as we get maybe some more Americans in action as MLS kicks back uh, kicks back up as the U.S. women's national team rounds into form. We'll probably cover those teams in depth. But for now, we welcome any and all questions about the U.S. women's team, the U.S. men's team, youth teams, MLS stuff, anything else. With that let said, let's A, some cues, shall we? That felt weird to say. <laughs> Joe, this one from Wendell G. I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is fair. I didn't either. It's why I'm moving us swiftly along. Uh, assuming all of these things happen over the next 1,000 years, which happens first, second, third, and fourth? Here are your options. The U.S. men's national team wins the World Cup. The U.S. women's national team fails to qualify for the World Cup. A U.S. MNT player wins the Ballon d'Or. And MLS reaches the level of the current big four leagues oh. in Europe. So one to four. Let's say which one is like... Most likely to happen first is number one, and that which will take the longest is number four. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Do you want me to go through my full one through four list, or do we want to go around and do four, three, two, one, or one, two? There's all sorts of ways this could go, and I, I just want to know, Taylor, what direction you're feeling here. G- give, me, give, me, give me one to four. Okay. All right. We're going to go one to four. So the, the first thing that I think will happen mm-hmm. of those four things. So, again, one more time the options because I've already forgotten them. It's yep. the men's national team winning the World Cup. The yep. women's national team failing to qualify for the World Cup, a US MNT eligible player or just a US MNT player winning the Ballon d'Or, mm-hmm. and MLS being at the level of the big four leagues in Europe, RIP France. So my my thing that I think will happen first on this list is a US MNT player winning the Ballon d'Or. This is such a hard question, and I love this question so much. I kind of worked backwards to get here, and so I ruled out all the other things. I think this will happen first. Maybe. Maybe this should be switched with my number two slot, but all it takes is one kid. Like th- That's what I'm really banking on here, right? All mm-hmm. it takes is one player. Maybe it's Gio Reyna someday. I know that maybe he's not the most popular player in U.S. soccer circles right now, but maybe it is Gio Reyna. Maybe it's some kid we've never heard of before who is not even you know really in U.S. soccer sites Gio at the Reyna's moment. Gio Reyna's son. I, 
Giorena's son. Blackmail that man. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. The cycle continues. <laughs> this is what we need. I don't. I don't think this is likely to be clear. Like this might be a hundred years down the road. This might be ten years down the road. It might be five years down the road. I don't know. The blackmail could be even sooner than any of those things. But to me, this one feels the most doable, the quickest, because mm-hmm. it's a numbers game and because you know you only need one. So that that's the thing that I think will happen first. Second, I have Major League Soccer becoming as good as a Big Four league. So not the Premier League. I think that's pretty far off slash maybe never going to happen. But I could see MLS catching Serie A in 30 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, somewhere in there. I don't know what it's going to be. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it in the next thousand years. So right. I feel so like got you've time. got some time to play with. And 30 years is, is small compared to a thousand yeah. years, right? So yeah, smart, Taylor. Only 3% there. It's, it's going to take time. MLS needs to take the brakes off. But I do think this is possible. Frankly, I think this is possible in a way that maybe one of these things is like almost impossible. So MLS is second on my list. Third on my list, so the thing that's going to happen, you know, after those first two things I mentioned, yep. is uh, is the U.S. men's national team winning the World Cup. So, uh, Taylor, I know you say the U.S. can win the World Cup or will in your lifetime. I don't know how long you're planning to live. I am a bit skeptical about that. I'm skeptical about it for any of our lifetimes. Forever. So it's, not, it's not just you. If you live forever, Taylor, you should be feeling good about that prediction. But... There's just so much randomness. The U.S., I think, is still a long ways off. I think they're further away from Brazil than MLS is away from Italy, if that makes sense. MLS is away from Syria. Yeah. So they're third on my list. And then last, I have the U.S. women's national team missing the World Cup. I just can't see it. I can't see it, guys. I just can't have that compute in my head. It could happen someday. You know, Maybe we go to a yearly World Cup and there's a fluke and everybody's injured. It's not impossible. But given how good this U.S. team and the gap that's between them and like all the other teams in CONCACAF basically that aren't Canada and maybe Mexico, I think it's going to be a long, long time. Maybe this is like year 800 of the thousand years that the U.S. misses out. So that's my one through four. I've got Ballon d'Or first. It's going to happen first. Then MLS. Then the men's national team winning the World Cup. Then the women missing the World Cup. I've been talking for forever. Uh, you have, but I liked it because I asked you to list all your four. You did so. You did so succinctly, I would say. And... You more or less had the exact same list I did. The yes. only thing I would say is I wasn't sure if if it's MLS becomes a top four league and then the USMNT wins the World Cup or vice hmm. versa if the USMNT wins the World Cup and then everybody's like, you know what, let's go play in MLS. Uh, either way, I think the Ballon d'Or, it feels like an individual can kind of reach those heights potentially yeah. uh, to make that claim. Then the USMNT winning the World Cup or MLS, and I'm with you that the women, like the US women failing to qualify for a World Cup just because, um, like, even if their program has a downturn, even if it doesn't stay as strong as it has, I still think other nations have to improve dramatically for the US to not end up qualifying for a World Cup, especially because they keep expanding it. Uh, so I think that is the least likely for me. Graham, how say you? So I broadly agree with Joe. Joe, it seemed like the biggest dilemma you had was between your one and two pick. Yeah. Is that yep. is that fair to say? I flipped those. So I'm I'm a little bit more bullish on, on MLS matching the, the quality of, of of a big four league in, in, in Europe. I think that's the thing that will happen first. Because broadly speaking, generally speaking, I don't think MLS is actually all that far away from being at the general quality of a league like Liga or the Eredivisie, which I know is maybe not one of the big four leagues, but that's just that's just kind of below those those big four leagues. I would say maybe the Bundesliga is generally, I know Bayern Munich are in there, but generally the weakest of, of the big four. And MLS is, is still quite a distance off. I don't think that's going to happen in the next 20 years. But when you look at the money involved in MLS and 
perhaps more crucially, players moving on for more money. So just just yesterday, John John Duran going to Aston Villa for what, like twenty million dollars or, or something like that, and that just makes it easier to attract good young players to the league. So that to me is the smallest gap to bridge of all the options because I think MLS. I find it easier to project that, whereas for the Ballon d'Or, which is my second pick, I'm kind of putting my faith as in, as you say, Joe, just some kid emerging. So it is, it is, it is my number two, but I actually have it quite a bit below my number one of, of MLS because MLS, I think, is already trending in that, in that direction. Um, the Ballon d'Or is ahead of the World Cup picks because there's a World Cup every, or sorry, there's a World Cup once every four years, there's a Ballon d'Or handed out every single year, unless it's to Robert Lewandowski, and so the law of averages, you have more of a chance of that, so, as you say, Joe, you only need one amazing individual, whereas to win a World Cup, you generally need about 15 top quality players. Then my third pick, uh, like uh, Joe's, is, is the USMNT world, winning the World Cup. They made the round of 16 in Qatar, so you're not starting from the very bottom. The US already has a, a very decent platform to, to build from, and I'm not saying the next steps will be easy, but you can project more pro- progress from that from that point over the next few decades. And then I, I agree, bottom of the list is the US WNT not qualifying for a World Cup. I know there's a rising tide in women's soccer, but that's generally coming from Europe, and obviously that doesn't affect the US's qualification, so... If this was a US doesn't make it out of the group at a, a World Cup, yeah. at a Women's World Cup, that maybe might maybe I have a different answer. But the dominance over the CONCACAF teams is is pretty established. And and even if the the quality of those teams is lifted over the next fifty years or so on, the US has such a dominance in terms of population and resource that it would take the US not doing their job to miss a World Cup. So I feel like that is bottom of my list by yeah. quite quite a distance actually that in, in fourth place. And yeah. if we're speculating over which American is most likely to win the Ballon d'Or first, we're all okay with just saying Tim Ream and moving on, right? Oh, clearly. I mean, I mean for the I hair alone, I presume he's right? going to be going to win it this year. I thought. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we're all on the same page. No more explanation on that one needed. No. Let's go to the next question, Graham. Uh, this one from Gabriel Yanas. Uh, My daughter's favorite player is Megan Rapino, mostly for her amazing signature hairstyle from 2019. Alexi Lalas won hearts and eyeballs that he did in 1994 for his fiery locks. The orange goatee with the orange hair on top. I guess red hair would probably be more generous. Who are your top five men's or women's national team hairstyles of all time? Do any of the U.S. players that make the FIFA World top five hairstyles? That one's tougher. That one's tougher. Uh, yeah. Maybe we could. Maybe Graham. Uh, don't don't give us all five if you've got it all okay. five, but give us a, a couple options. Okay, so top of my list is maybe a slightly surprising one, but there's a there's a personal anecdote here. So Mix Discarude has to be somewhere Ooh. in my ranking. Good flow. And the reason for that is I used to work with a a, a woman at, at, at Scotch TV who really really fancied Mix Discarude. Pretty much because of his hair, it, it was like, it was like something out of a. I've not seen him for a while, so I presume he still got the the hair. But back in the day, was, his hair was like something out of a L'Oreal L'Oreal commercial or, or something like that. <laughs> and and he, he he looked good with it. He was he's a he's a he's a handsome man. He's got the whole kind of Scandinavian hair thing going on. So yeah, missed, <laughs> the Scandinavian hair thing. What's yeah, <laughs> yeah, they have. Do they not have? Long hair, Scandinavians like long hair. I, short, get, but. I get exactly what you mean. I pull up a picture, and that is that's a perfect description. Also, one dollar to anyone on this show who can name the country that Mix Discarude plays in right now. Cyprus, baby. Yeah. Okay. Taylor. Oh, well done. They were they were in Manchester United's group. Uh, I yeah. was I was oh, shocked shoot. to find that out when I was watching shoot, the planes. Right. I remember that now. 
there he was in all his glory, in all the flowing lock glory. I think he still has that hair. I'm pretty sure he does. Yeah. 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 He looks better. like it from what I can find. <laughs> all right. So we've got mixed screwed in there, Graham. I think that's a, that's a strong shout. Uh, why don't you give us one more? Okay, um, let's go with Tony Miola, party in the back look, which was uh, pretty iconic when he played for the US in, in the 90s. What I want for 2023 is a Tony Miola tribute from Matt Turner. That's what I want for 2023 for the Gold Cup. Oh, so, yeah. wow. I forgot he had the, the oh, spiky no. knives up front and then yeah. the uh, the flowing locks in the back. Oh, this is wow, really that was this is that really was bad. a mullet from Tony Miola. Goodness <laughs> gracious. I think the mullet always seems to be like on the verge of coming back, and then we all kind of collectively decide, now nah, we're good. Uh, but mm. if it does come back, yeah, Matt Turner, I think, needs to yeah. rock that one. So we've got Mix's Flowing Locks, Tony Miola's mullet. Uh, Joe, who else would you have on that list? Okay, so I think Lawless is the winner here. I, I honestly think that's pretty clear, although the mullet, I just can't take my eyes off this thing on Tony Mueller's head. I don't know who put it there, and I don't know if we can take it off, but I can't look away. I do think Lawless's combo with the with the red hair and beard is top tier. I think it's probably the most iconic U.S. soccer hairstyle ever. Yep. So that is on the top of my list. But some other ones on my list. One, I think this one is going to go under the radar because of whatever reverse recency bias is called. But Sophia Smith... Has yeah. I had to ask I had to ask my wife what this style was called because I did not know. I'm going to admit my ignorance here. Uh, has a bubble braid, so it's it's a ponytail with with sort of these poofs between each hair tie, and it looks incredible. It's a phenomenal look. It's become her signature look on and off the field for the national team. It's great. I really like how this looks. So Sophia Smith's bubble braid is on my list, and then one other one that I had forgotten about until I really went deep in the hair weeds here. Jossie Zardes with his bleached. Oh, strip yeah. right down the middle of his head mm. less so for what it looks like and more so for why he did it so i've read that jossie zardes did that hairstyle it's very easy to pick him out on tv so that his grandma could watch him play and figure out who he was as she watched his games i think that's <laughs> epic and i i love that jossie zardes did that so he's on my list as well uh, those are some those are some solid ones i had a different braid i i'm going becky uh becky sauerbrunn's just sort of power braid that she yeah. has that almost could be like a scorpion tail you can imagine her doing some damage with that one uh but it's just the she, it's the same braid every single time you, you know what to expect it's iconic in that way uh and i had uh the clint mathis mohawk from 2002 oh, also pick. on that list uh clint oh, mathis yeah. just just a, a chaos player as i recall like as <laughs> likely to score a worldie as get a red card uh, I remember there was much discussion in 2002 about how he loved eating McDonald's before and after games. That's that's maybe no longer a thing that would be allowed in the modern game. But that mohawk, not even a faux hawk, just a full-on mohawk for 2002 was uh, was quite the look. So I'd have him on my list, too. Mm, that's that a good, a There's so look. many. There are so many. Like, I was shocked at how many good contenders there are. So Rapino is on my list as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, it, depending on what color it is on any given day, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Kyle Beckerman with his dreadlocks as well. Ooh. I'd completely forgotten about Kyle Beckerman so playing for the national I. team. It's a, I mean, that's a strong yeah. look. It is a yeah. strong look. Remember Not one I would go for. Oh, that was that tragic. Was a shock when he we, cut we don't talk about We shouldn't it. have yeah, allowed it was a national that. day of mourning. We, don't we shouldn't have that. allowed that. <laughs> and then a couple other uh, honorable mentions that didn't make my top five. Weston McKenney with his red, white, and blue hair at the World yep. Cup. I think that will age very well. Um, and then Graham Zuzzi with his man bun, completely had forgotten about that. Unbelievable. I mean, just so many great contenders here. 
Yeah, I, I, I also had, I didn't have Graham Zussi, but I had Wes McKenney. Another recent one, I feel like DeAndre Yedlin mm-hmm. deserves a mention, mm-hmm. but he's had so many different this variations of this stripes and green triangle, bits green and triangle. blonde bits. All okay, let's go for the green triangle. Yeah, they, all, so, they all sort of mix into one. He had some sort of like mountain range at the back of his head mm-hmm. for the World Cup that just passed there. I don't think did did Yedlin actually make it on the pitch at the World Cup? Yeah, he, did. He, he did. He did. Yeah. He did right. Game. Yeah. So yeah, the, he had like I don't know if it was meant to be like the Rockies or something in the back of his head, <laughs> but yeah, Yedlin deserves yeah. a mention. And then I also had for the the Dreads, I had I had Beckerman, but I feel like Kobe Jones and his yeah. Dreads yep. deserve a mention a because that was just a very strong iconic look from. Kobe Jones. I, I, when I think of Kobe, Kobe Jones, I think of kind of the silhouette of of him with the with the dreads in kind of the late nineties. Agree on Kobe Jones. I also had DeAndre Edlin on the short list, but he does change it so often that like it, it just becomes expected that that it's going to be uh, loud and out there. Sometimes it's green, sometimes it's like aqua, sometimes it's blonde, uh, sometimes it's got mountain ranges in it, sometimes it's froed. He can go a lot of different ways. Uh, DeAndre Edlin has versatility, is what I'm saying. Either way, so, some some good nominations in there. But in terms of the final part of that question, do any of the U.S. players make? The FIFA Oof. World Top Five hairstyles. I don't think so. I think Valderrama will forever be number one for me. Mm. Uh, yeah. the, just, just the the flowing locks, the kind of uh, frizzled blonde hair. I think that's always number one, and maybe also number two. Yeah, Ronaldo, two thousand and two World Cup yeah. half moon is up there. <laughs> Nobody. I don't think anyone makes makes it that far from the the US ranks. Maybe. I mean, Kyle Beckerman is. That's quite unusual. I can't think of another player. Who's had that hairstyle like he did? Yeah. But he's he he certainly doesn't have the the name recognition of Valderrama or certainly Ronaldo. Have so. we had a World Cup winner with like a like a, a beard beard? Not like like they've got some facial hair. Not like they've been growing it for like a week or two. But like a full on like di- like you know like uh like who who was it who won with uh, Portland? Who's now I can't believe Matt I'm forgetting. Borchers. Thank you. Like that. Have we had that win the World Cup yet? I don't think we have. I don't think not that I can recall anyway. Unacceptable. Mm, I- I don't think Nat Borchers won the World Cup in his three appearances for the U.S. between 2005 and 2010. So maybe we you don't know that, Graham. That. You can't prove it. <laughs> I tell you what, I'm going to take the break to to check and make sure because you never know. Maybe he did. Maybe he did. And then we will be back uh, with an answer to that one and with some more listener questions in just a second. New game day shirt, boom, cash back. Food for the tailgate, boom. Cash back. Even buying a round can earn you cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, I said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who is taking the win, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees, period? I'm telling you, this one, it's a real game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Did you know that even if you have a 401k for retirement, you can still have an IRA? Robinhood has the only IRA that gives you a 3% boost on every dollar you contribute when you subscribe to Robinhood Gold. But get this, now through April 30th, Robinhood is even boosting every single dollar you transfer in from another retirement account with a 3% match. That's right, no cap on the 3% match. Robinhood Gold gets you the most for your retirement thanks to their IRA with a 3% match. This offer is good through April 30th. Get started at Robinhood.com slash boost subscription fees apply. 
And now for some legal info. Claim as of Q1 2024 validated by Radius Global Market Research. Investing involves risk including loss. Limitations apply to IRAs and 401ks. 3% match requires Robinhood Gold for one year from the date of first 3% match. Must keep Robinhood IRA for five years. The 3% matching on transfers is subject to special terms and conditions. Robinhood IRA available to U.S. customers in good standing. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC is a registered broker. Dealer. Welcome back. Uh, we have confirmation. Nat Borchers did win the World Cup. Uh, I'm just going to yeah, go ahead yeah, and run with that, and we'll see up. how it plays out. Um, as we all uh, like, learn some important lessons about Nat Borchers on today's episode, uh, Joe, we're coming to you from a question from Jake Peralta, who I'm assuming took time from being a detective with, in yep. Brooklyn Nine-Nine's yep. precinct, to, uh, to ask us this. With Rhode Island finally getting a professional soccer team, thanks to former Phoenix Rising founder and shareholder Brett Johnson, uh, what are outlets for me to grow my U.S championship knowledge during this season so i'm prepared for 2024 sorry can we just tell jake the answer i think there has to be some sort of elaborate heist that has to go on before he <laughs> yes, finds the answer yes, yes. this doesn't feel right that feel like you know he's not putting in the the necessary work here i've got <laughs> i've got a couple of those shouts here so the first place that i think has the the most consistent in a lot of really high quality usl coverage is uslchampionship.com so that's the first place i would send people it's a lot like major league soccer so mlssoccer.com it's the league's own website so i know that rubs people the wrong way sometimes when it comes to to coverage honestly like as someone who supports a usl club beggars can't be choosers here jake so i i would say there's a lot of good stuff nicholas murray does a fantastic job he knows the league better than anyone and has covered it for a really long time and so that is the first place to look not to toot my own horn too much, so I'll let Graham toot it momentarily. But backyield.com, I think, is, is another spot. So that's a site that I, that I help out with. We have a bunch of USL articles up already, and we're going to have a bunch more this season with information and stories on every team throughout the year. So we're aiming to really make that like a one-stop shop for regular USL coverage for fans of, of teams all throughout the USL championship. So I'm, I'm pumped for Rhode Island because I think that's a really cool market to be getting a USL championship city. And hopefully by the time Rhode Island is entering the USL Championship, uh, we'll we'll get you up to speed on some of that stuff. And then I think there are lots of of different podcasts for teams in the league, and then some like broader ones as well. Plus, obviously USL uh, League One. We've got River City '93. If you want to uh, go one level down, if you don't, uh, the USL show is a, is a good place to start. Uh, and and I think there's many many others in there. Uh, but I think I like I will be honest and say I don't do nearly as good of a job keeping up to date with USL. I think I tend to rely on Joe for that sort of information. So with that in mind, I will also echo yeah. echo backfield. Graham, you you feeling similar? Yeah, I, I I um I I was very similar in that I don't read a, a great deal of content about the USL Championship or really any of the American lower leagues. But that's not that's not through me me uh, you know lack of desire for that sort of content yeah. i read stuff occasionally on the athletic when it's on there i read uh, the stuff that's on backfield as, as as well i read the stuff there's occasionally usl stuff on um pro soccer wire and it, but it's not regular and and there's not there's not a great there's not somewhere that you can go other than the usl's own one website that provides that regular coverage so i don't think it's complete ignorance on my part and and Taylor, I think your thoughts are, are, are similar. You know, maybe you don't 
you're not as up to date with that league as, as you could be. But I think mm-hmm. it's difficult. And I think that actually points to a wider issue with American soccer media, where it feels like a lot of the coverage lags behind the general growth of leagues and clubs in, in general. MLS coverage is still largely produced by the league itself, and they do a, they do a great job of that. Um, but independent soccer media feels like it's it's still not quite there in, in the states and that's why sites like backheeled or the striker down in down in tesco in, in, uh, in te- texas they, they give me so much hope because that feels like another part of the mediascape growing and I, I used to write for a site called pro soccer usa which was launched by the same company that owns the orlando sentinel and and that was very short-lived which shows you how hard it is mm-hmm. to to launch those sort of operations but Hopefully we will see broader coverage of soccer in the States from independent sources over the next five to ten years because I, I do think it's needed for leagues like the, the USL Championship and some of the lower leagues. How does it compare, say, to the Scottish Championship or just the Championship in England, Graham? Do you feel like, like obviously there is more coverage of those leagues. There is also mm. more money there, I think, or at least with the English Championship. But I, I still tend to feel like if you're getting coverage of it in the Guardian, it's either about like very dramatic moments that happen with like five red cards, or it's a very quick sort of this game happened, this game happened, this game happened style summary. So the English Championship, I think there's a great deal of coverage about the English Championship. If you go onto Sky Sports News, they will they there'll be a lot of English Championship highlights, and they will cover the stories. That that's generally because you have big clubs in the English Championship, so there, there's the, the the demand for it. I also think there's a podcast. I'm struggling to remember the name of it. There's a very good podcast called I think it's called Not the Top Twenty Podcast. And that covers all things EFL, not just English Championship. Gabriel Sutton is a journalist who he does an incredible job. He does he does like a live Twitter broadcast every night, focusing on a, a different EFL team. So I think the EFL is is, re- is relatively well served. The Scottish Championship, not so much, but it's just down to the fact there's there's smaller teams there. But we still have national newspapers that cover. You know, if you pick up a a Daily Record on a Sunday or a Herald on a Sunday, you will have two three pages on lower league. Scottish mm. football and that is a much smaller league and smaller clubs than you have even in the lower leagues in America I would say and it, I, I don't know where I would pick that up in a newspaper in the US I don't I mean I know it's a different mediascape and yeah and the national newspapers don't really do that sort of thing right. but I, I just don't know where I'd get those reports or coverage yeah and that, that's the thing is like soccer in the US is starting from a much more disadvantaged place compared to even soccer in Scotland which you know has its own challenges and we've talked about some of those things on the show certainly than soccer in England. You're not, you're not going to pick up a national newspaper and read an MLS article, right? I mean, so, or even like a national team article or a soccer story, period. That stuff doesn't happen. It's happening more, but it doesn't happen a lot. And it certainly doesn't happen as much as it does in, in soccer-focused countries and in soccer-focused areas like England and Scotland. So, yeah, Taylor, that's an interesting question about how the different championships you know, are covered in different places. I just can't believe that changing the branding... I remember listening, Taylor, you guys talked about this, you and Daryl, and, and maybe you had a guest on a while ago, when the USL rebranded and sort of explained the, the rebranding. I just can't believe that changing the name of, of the USL to be the USL Championship didn't just fix things and didn't just make it as good as the English <laughs> Championship. That feels like that was the goal, and I'm just saddened to see that it didn't work. <laughs> I mean, I'm just happy that we've had one league as the second league for like the same name for a long time. Because I remember True. having the A-League for a while. There was U-Sissel at one point. The kickers were playing in the USISL. Uh, there was the A-League. I've there never was said USL it like Championship. There's USL League One for the kickers. They, they've had a yeah. lot of different professional oh, leagues U-Sissel. at various points. What's happening yeah. with the NASL at the moment? Is that still in hibernation? Because yeah. that's yep. 
the Cosmos were are, were part of that, and I'm not sure what's going on there at all. So, still feels like that whole pyramid is settling a little bit. Can someone start a podcast just called "What's Going On with the NASL"? And then once a week, it could just be like a shoulder shrug. I don't know. It's something. I'm guessing. And then it's just ten second episodes. Nah, we don't know. <laughs> I'm assuming it's still around. I'm assuming the Cosmos are still. Somewhere, and I'm assuming Eric Cantona so, is still counting his money from that uh, marketing campaign. So the Cosmos, when when Pele passed uh, passed away, they they tweeted out a statement um, as you would expect them to, and I think that was their first tweet for three years, which doesn't suggest there's a whole lot going on behind that Twitter account at the moment, which is which is sad. I, I'm a little bit of a Cosmos apologist, um, so I'd like to see them back in the NASL back in some form, I guess. I don't know if there is a, a, a an is Wikipedia entry, but I've got two different the North American Soccer League was entries. Uh, one from sixty eight to eighty four, one from two thousand eleven to twenty seventeen. Uh, maybe that's worth delving into at a later time. What happened to the NASL and will it return? Uh, but for now, we've got a question, uh, Graham, that I think will we'll take some time because uh, I think that we could cover this in a lot of different ways. Uh, a, a couple different people asked us about Jesse Marsh. Uh, first from Stephen Norman. Should Jesse Marsh really be in consideration for the USA job? It seems like he has struggled at Leipzig and Leeds, and is hard. And it's hard to tell if that's down to his approach or bad timing at the respective clubs. Similarly, uh, David Beffert asked, uh, said, as a TSS, as TSS has outlined many times, national coaches should be tactically flexible. They have a limited player pool, less time to build a system than club coaches. Even if we agree that the USMNT have the players for a Red Bull style system, would Jesse Marsh have the time to get that right? And does he have a plan? B. So both of these getting like deep into the issue pretty quickly. Let's start with a, the basic one, Graham. Do we think Jesse Marsh is actually in consideration for the USMNT gig? Not at this moment in time. No. Okay. I can't imagine Jesse Marsh wants to leave the Premier League. The projection that people, including myself, are making is that maybe Jesse Marsh isn't in the Premier League at, at some point in the near future. He's doing a... I find it difficult to judge how Jesse Marsh is doing at Leeds. He's, he saved them from relegation last season and they were sinking like a stone under Marcelo Bielsa. So he gets some some credit for that. But they haven't really kicked on from that point. It feels like Leeds are still in a, in a relegation battle, which when you look at their squad, certainly for the first half of the, the season, is is maybe where they are if you had to place them in, in, in the Premier League. They're 14th at the moment, which is actually not bad. But when you look at the points, they are only two points above the the relegation zone so they could fall quite easily into in, into that danger um i am on the record saying as saying on this show that marsh would be the guy i would want to lead the us into the 2026 world cup and, and i still think that even though there are some mixed thoughts over how he has done at leeds but to answer your question i don't think i'd be surprised if he's been interviewed for that job at right now because obviously he's he's in a he's in a position you would have to ask leeds united for that permission permission we don't have any indication that that has that has happened why would leeds unless they really they really want to get rid of jesse marsh and get some compensation i guess maybe they would grant the permission then but i don't get i don't get the sense that jesse marsh is itching for that job right now but I, I still think, and this comes back to when we've talked about this maybe last week or the week before, when I said something along the lines of, I don't think there's any rush for the US right now. The next World Cup is three and a half years away, and it's a cycle without qualifiers. There is time for for, for US soccer to consider what the route forward is. I would even wait till the summer, at which point maybe Jesse Marsh is available then, and that is the person I would I would, I would go for. But I think if you look at his suitability for for this for the US job 
Um, I do think the, US, the Red Bull style would work well for this group of US players. It, it might require some time on, on, on the training pitch. So I can't remember if it was Stevens or, or Stevens' question or, or David's question. I know they kind of merged into one. But re- reference the, the, the time needed to, to build that system. I, I would kind of argue you maybe require less time on the training pitch to play the Red Bull way than you do the Greg Berhalter way, which is all about intricate passing patterns and, and, and more control. That, that feels more like something better suited to the club game. And when you look at the, the two teams that have won the last two um, major tournaments, certainly in my mind, maybe there's some other major tournaments in between them, but the, the World Cup and, and, and the Euros, the men's tournaments, Argentina and Italy, I, I see more Red Bull DNA and how those teams play, certainly with Italy at the Euros, I see more Red Bull DNA in how they play than, than Berhalter DNA, which is more about possession. So, yeah, I think the I think the style that Marsh plays would work work well with with the group. With regards to a lack of Plan B, that is something Leeds fans are are arguing about um, with Marsh this season, and and I understand why. But I don't know if that's down to Marsh's approach or the personnel at Leeds, because the argument always focuses focuses on, on the attack. And Marsh, if you go back through his coaching career, he has shown that he can work with lots of different sorts of forwards as a coach so Erling Haaland is very different to Wilfred Yonto who who has looked great for Leeds recently and he's very different to Christopher Nkuku who was actually in fantastic form for Leipzig under under Marsh I think he scored maybe 12 goals in the time that Marsh was was there and you can kind of trace his his uptick in goal scoring output to that the start of that season under Jesse Marsh so those are those are very different forwards and even if you look at the forwards that he has used for for Leeds this season you know Rodrigo and Bamford maybe maybe similar there but then Yonto is very different Brendan Aronson has been used in the centre forward position Joe Gelhart is much more physical so there is a variance in the kind of players that he's using in, in the attack and the, and the, as I say the discussion around the plan B always focuses on the attack so it, I am um, as I say I struggle to work out what's happening at Leeds for Marsh right now maybe I need a full season maybe I'll be able to offer a, a better judgment at the end of the, of, of the campaign but right now he's still the guy I would go for if, if I was US soccer. Uh, Joe I'm going to assume that you are mostly or completely in agreement that he maybe isn't like being talked to right now by US soccer but maybe will be down the road. I'm wondering where you are on Graham's assertion that uh, his style would be easier to implement mm. than potentially Greg Berhalter's style. I, I think there is something to that. I would wager at the end of the day, they are both complicated. If you want to do them well, they're both going to take a lot of time to fine tune. So the difficulty with Baralter style is really drilling down patterns and build up to build through pressure, which to be honest, we've never really seen the US execute very well. And I think that's down to personnel really more than anything else. That's part of this. Then the other aspect for Baralter that I think never really came into, into fullest form was their work in the final third, right? Those kill patterns in the final third to, to break the ball, to break the, the other team's defense down and, and to really create high-quality chances on a regular basis. I'm not sure we ever saw that click all the way either. Mm-hmm. The, the thing with Marsh, and I was talking to uh, a New York Red Bulls player the other day, the thing with the Red Bull style is you know, how difficult it is to nail all of those pressing triggers, right? To move as a group. Jesse Marsh calls it a net, right? They move sort of designed to have these spaces between the players that are 
always, you know, X number of yards wide. If I go close down the fullback, my own fullback is going to come up behind me and they're going to keep that gap tight. My central midfielder on the strong side is going to come down and close that space and split the distances between, you know, the, the other team's midfielder and the other team's center back, all that, all that kind of stuff. It's hard to drill that stuff and it does take time. So I don't really know. I've never tried to coach either one of those styles, but I would wager they're both just really hard to implement correctly and, and to get yeah. you know, maximized in the national team environment. So yeah, that that's difficult. My the thing I keep coming back to, and I think maybe Graham and I disagree slightly on this, which is fine. Uh I I think my biggest conviction following the USMNT's previous World Cup cycle, which had a ton of downs, it had a lot of ups too with trophies and, and World Cup that I think went okay and had a lot of exciting moments in it, is I don't want to throw, and I've said this on TSS before, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I would rather the U.S. try to find someone. Maybe this is impossible. Whether it's Greg Berhalter, whether it's someone else, who is going to iterate and build on the style the U.S. have tried to play. Now, that style evolved a ton from January 2019, Berhalter's first camp in charge, Berhalter's first game in charge, to you know December, whatever it was, when they lost to the Netherlands. That style was very different, but it was still based around trying to use the ball to break teams down. And Jesse Marsh, just straight up, I don't believe is going to do that stuff. I don't think he believes that that's the best way to play soccer. And if you don't believe that, you're not going to coach that way. And, and that's fine. I'm not sure he's really wrong either. Maybe this is me falling victim to the sunk cost fallacy. But I would love to see the U.S. bring in a manager or hire a manager that is going to drill down on the stuff in the final third, that is going to take the players the U.S. has, the foundation, the control that they figured out how to establish – and turn that into dominance. Maybe this is mm-hmm. like pie in the sky stuff and won't happen and the U.S. isn't good enough to do it and they should just scrap it and go transition heavy. I just I just struggle with that idea right now. Joe, you're right to reference the, the progress that US, the USA made under Berhalter from 2019 to, the, to the, the World Cup that we just had there. But I think if you look at those the, the two ends of the spectrum there, the U.S. at the World Cup didn't necessarily. I don't know. There were, I know there were good moments. There were there were good moments in possession, and there was control there in in in, in some games. How do you write goal but of the tournament? They didn't, yep. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't necessarily play the way that Berhalter wanted. Certainly not in, a, in the purest sense. He wanted back in 2019. He was a little bit more pragmatic about Agreed. it. There Agreed. were moments where the US were slightly more direct. And yep. that, I would argue that was when the US looked more, more, more dangerous, when they did play in those moments of quick transition. And that is something you're going to get more, or that's the theory yeah. anyway, with a, with a Jesse Marsh Red Bull team, is they are more direct in those in those attacking areas. So you you see it as quite a big shift between Berhalter and Jesse Marsh. And I think in terms of their thesis statement as, um, as coaches, that's probably true. But if you look at the practicalities of how the US actually played at that World Cup, I'm not convinced it is a giant shift. It probably is a little bit of a shift, but I would argue that's an evolution. That's, yeah. a, that's a progression rather than starting again. And that's an interesting point, right? I just pulled up the possession stats, and, and these should be taken with a truckload of salt. But the US averaged 53% possession. So, Graham, I hear what you're saying. The U.S. very clearly were still trying to control the ball, and part of that's because of the group they had, right? So that does skew things a little bit, and it's not a big enough sample size for us to take. But we do know that the U.S. under Berhalter still valued possession. The the thing that I think sort of colors our view of how the U.S. created chances in the World Cup is, you, you know, you're talking about them creating them in transition moments. I would argue, like now we're sort of philosophical here, I would argue that when you have possession, your goal is to create transition moments. Just as when you think about a Red Bull team, a Jesse Marsh Leeds United team, their goal is also to create transition moments. Just the way they go about doing those things is different. Leeds go about it by pressing high, by playing against the ball, by winning it in midfield, by driving forward. Boom. 
transition moments created. The U.S. do it by controlling the ball, right? They do it by having the ball, trying to find a little bit of a gap, and then running through that gap and going. And I know that's not how the U.S.'s first goal of the tournament was scored. That, that Tim Weah goal really is just a straight-up transition moment that you would find in pretty much any team because when that opportunity falls to you, you're going to take it. But I, I think really the goal of the systems is very similar. The risk, the risk with the Jesse Marsh high-pressing style is that you give up a ton of chances. And we've seen Leeds give up a lot of chances this season. The U.S. defended very well in the World Cup and defended in general under Greg Berhalter very, very well from 2019 all the way through to the end of 2022. You know, you lose some of that defensive ability when you don't have the ball because the other team has it and they're coming right down your throat. So, I don't know. Like, there is no right and wrong answer. We clearly don't know how soccer is supposed to be played. Otherwise, you know, we would have figured it out by now and everybody would be doing the exact same thing. I, I think this is a difficult question to answer, I think Jesse Marsh could do a very good job with the U.S. because I think he's a good coach. He seems like a smart dude, very charismatic. I think would do a good job leading the team and would continue to have a strong, tight-knit locker room, and that is important. But I, I still think I'd rather see you know, progression with what's been built than a deviation from it. Maybe you're right, Graham, though, that it's not that big of a change. Joe, would you rather have Jesse Marsh come in right now or Berhalter, Berhalter continue until the 26th? Oh, you're just trying to get me spit-roasted on Twitter, Graham. Um, <laughs> yes. oh, honestly, well, going, going, with my, going with my theory, going with my principle, I have to say Berhalter. I, I think someone that's going to continue to build and someone that's going to, to see the game how Berhalter sees it, I would, I'd be very curious to see how much the U.S. could progress in that style. Uh, Graham, what about you? Oh, Marsh is really. I, I, Mar- Marsh is my choice. Mar- Marsh is my look. My my dream mo- uh, choice would be Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp or someone like that. But the kind of real realistic dream choice, if that makes any sense, is Jesse Marsh for me. So yeah, yeah. putting Berhalter up against him can I, doesn't change anything. Can I caveat one thing here, real quick? I think the manager discussion is fascinating. I think it's like the fifth most important thing for the U.S. headed into 2026. Like, and maybe the first four are all just getting better players or, or having the best <laughs> players get better. Like, I, I don't, I honestly don't think it matters one bit if it's Greg Berhalter or Jesse Marsh when it comes down to winning the World Cup. Like, do we, do we think either one of those managers is good enough to help the U.S. win the World Cup? I don't. I, I really don't believe that. No, but that's, that's not the only yardstick. Is no, it? That, we've got a thousand years to do that, Joe. Yeah, give it a thousand years. Greg Berhalter's, you know, great, 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 great grandson. I, I think ultimately <laughs> the, the U.S.'s players and the quality or the lack thereof is the major factor. We're talking about margins when we're talking about managers, honestly, unless it is one of a select few. I just don't think Greg Berhalter coming back makes the U.S. you know an automatic group stage flop, and I don't think Jesse Marsh coming in makes the U.S. automatic World Cup semifinal contenders. It's just it's it's a really no. really thin margin here. No, I I, I agree with that. I just, I'm just laughing because Joe, I'm not sure you've ever sounded more stereotypically American. If if you don't win, you lose. Is essentially <laughs> <laughs> essentially your point there. <laughs> Let's get Xavi. Let's get Xavi in. I'm all in on Xavi coaching the best team in the world right now. Why not get him to the best national team in the world, baby? The answer, of course, is Pellegrino Matarazzo. But you know what? Uh, to each their own. And Joe, uh, I will say. I know you don't have a, have kids yet. Uh, you should not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just like okay, know that good. for sure. Mm, Definitely yeah. don't do that. Uh, Thank you. If you do, you've made a mistake. Good to know. Appreciate okay, it. I'm, yeah, I'm, take I'm, the baby out first, I'm, then throw the bathwater out. Oh, that. <laughs> or just okay. drain it away like a human. <laughs> that actually makes exactly. sense. <laughs> Graham, you don't have to huck it up the upstairs window uh, over there in Scotland. That's good. I'm glad you've got, you've got drains going on. Yeah, it's Victorian times here in Glasgow. <laughs> just throw it out the window. <laughs> it does. I think like... 
overall, th- this type of question is interesting to me. Who should be the coach? Would this one work? Would this would this work? I think it just it feels very murky right now. I, I have said before. I will say again. I think if the the like Gio Reyna saga doesn't happen, if Berhalter doesn't speak publicly, if we don't get then the. Uh, the kind of revelations, accusations, whatever it may be, uh, I think he is probably already renewed. But because that does happen, then there's the story about Zidane being offered the job, and I really would love to know what the story there is. I hope somebody digs into that one. Maybe Pablo Mar, like 10 years from now, can go back and revisit that, because that might just be agent speak, but I, if, you're, if you're the agent of Zinedine Zidane, no disrespect to the national team that I love. I don't know if that's quite the thing that's moving the needle for other teams yeah. to try to make an offer. So yeah, I wonder if are like, oh, we need to get in there. The U.S. Are, yeah, exactly. the US are really pressing hard. Exactly. So that that there's something there because that doesn't feel like fully made up, but it doesn't feel fully real either. But if they are then approaching other people, maybe it's just to see if there's any interest at all But so they can say they did their due diligence. But I, I, I take your point, Graham, that it doesn't seem like Jesse Marsh needs to make that decision decision now it seems like there's a lot of coaches who could sort of hold off and and wait for the dust to settle and see how things uh, are situated and see what qualifying is going to look like what the uh, next couple of years are going to look like in terms of schedule before they they make a pretty big decision so for right now it feels like there's going to be a ton of speculation but less clarity which is I think my attempt at a reverse jinx so that this afternoon we get the announcement that we do have a national team coach on the way. And if that happens, we will certainly talk about it maybe on the big thing on Friday. For now, unless you all have anything else uh, on this one, uh, let's take a break and then answer two more, our final two. Uh, But first, anything else for either of you for this one? Not for me. All right. Then I'm I'm (laughs) pleased that we have established we're not quite sure it might work and don't throw babies out with water. Uh, Back in just a second with our final two questions. Today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Indochino. MLS is back, which means MLS fits are back. We got to see FC Dallas's cowboy hat move from player to player. And Iramendi rocked that thing after their win recently over the San Jose Earthquakes. We're getting to see pregame fits. Another FC Dallas player and Kosi Tafare never disappoints. Will Trapp over in Minnesota has surprisingly good pregame fits for the Loons. Athletes love to have the right fit and so do we. We love wearing our sports gear, but you can't wear a jersey all the time. Indochino makes fully customized suits that don't require a trip to the tailor to get that perfect fit. Indochino has high quality suits that are designed to fit you. They are made to your exact measurements and customizations, endless customization options at that. This is custom clothing, folks, at a surprisingly affordable price. We're talking quality wools, linen, and cotton in different colors and patterns. Indochino.com is your one-stop shop for all of this stuff. The ordering process is easy. The site is super simple, clean, and easy to use to find suits, shirts, pants, blazers, outerwear, All of that good stuff over at Indochino.com. If you want to level up your game with Indochino, go to Indochino.com and use code ATHLETIC to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com with code ATHLETIC. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com with code ATHLETIC. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham, and Joe. Just kidding. 
Just kidding. Very much just kidding. Because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show. And I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the, 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 uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic. And all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy. And they're going to make it feel like you're connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back. We've got two final questions. Joe, coming to you for one from Andrew McPherson. Tim Ream and Jedi Robinson are currently sitting sixth, sixth, says Andrew, in the Premier League after beating Chelsea on Thursday. Uh, what's the highest an American has finished in the Premier League as a starter? What is the highest a promoted team has finished in the Premier League? Okay, so I'll take the first half of this one. Mm -hmm. The highest an American has finished in the Premier League as a starter is a savvy way to ask the question because the highest an American has ever finished in the Premier League is first. Zach Steffen won the Premier League twice with Manchester City playing 90 minutes each in in those seasons. So was not a key performer for Pep Guardiola's squad. I mean, yeah, honestly, you got to give it up for Zach Steffen. Real training, locker room hero. Wait, did he get a Premier League winner's medal then if he only played the two games? Well, he, yeah, I think they changed the rules a few years ago. I think if you if you get an appearance, I mean, it's not like the Premier League is is lacking for cash to get true. those medals produced, is it? So I think the, it used to be maybe five years ago you needed like five appearances, which mm-hmm. is why towards the end of the season teams that had already wrapped up the title would end up throwing on kids so they would yeah. get their medal. But I don't think that happens anymore. Okay, okay, so, so that Stefan would be the unofficial winner, but we're not counting him. Right. Zach Steffen is the unofficial winner. Now, I it kind of depends on how you want to define starter, and maybe this is where we have different answers, and I'm not really sure where you draw the line. So I've got a couple of different shouts here. So Brad Friedel played you know, a, a decent chunk of the Premier League season. He started 11 games, played just about 1,000 minutes, and then basically did the same thing with 12 games and just over 1,000 minutes back in 97-98 and 98-99 with Liverpool. The first of those years, Liverpool finished third in the Premier League. So that's a that's an extremely high finish. The other one is Christian Pulisic, who finished third with Chelsea. I don't I don't really think he qualifies as a starter necessarily finishing what that would have been last season, 20 Yeah, yeah, that would have been last 22, season. 22, isn't it? Yeah, so you know, they finished third. I don't I don't think he qualifies. Like I don't not sure where we draw the line and where where the general TSS council rules here. Clint Dempsey finished fifth. I think, with I think he was. He, he okay. I think yeah, I think I mean, he was. Sorry, sorry to jump in, Joe. He no, made twenty two appearances, and I think the reason he didn't make more was injury injuries at that, yeah. in that season. So I think he has a star. So does anybody have anything higher than third? Because that's where I landed in my list of Premier League starters. So, 
not not anyone higher as a starter, but the other one I found who also finished third was Tim Howard, who was Man United's first choice yep. goalkeeper when they finished third in the Premier League. Did you sorry, Joe? You did. Did you mention? No, no, him? yeah, no? you're good. I'm not going. Yeah, so Tim Howard uh, in the 2003-04 season, um, which was actually was actually deemed a pretty bad season for Manchester United, and I, I remember that at that time a lot of questions about whether Ferguson was going to retire and 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 so on, but. Nonetheless, third third choice is is a decent season, and that he he also joins that list along with Pulisic and uh, who's other one you mentioned? Friedel. Brad Friedel. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Tim Howard also as a like guaranteed lockdown starter, finishing somewhat high at the table, like sixth, seventh, eighth with Everton a couple different times. But yeah, I think third place is about the the summit so far. Even if Zach Steffen, I think, has two Premier League winner winners medals, I wouldn't say he was instrumental in those wins yeah. put it that way Tim Tim Howard this is where maybe the rule change affects Tim Howard because he is um second choice goalkeeper in or, or maybe third choice goalkeeper in 2006-7 when Man United actually win the Premier League title and he made he made one so he made one appearance the season before that when he finished second he didn't make a, an appearance in 06-7 so he doesn't get his winner's medal in 06-7 which maybe warps this question of apparently when I googled it Zach Steffen is counted as the only American to have won the Premier yeah. League even though uh, Tim Howard was in a squad when Man United won the Premier League so I, I don't know whether a rule change there has affected things but I went through I went through s- some other players the only player who kind of got close Clint Dempsey finished seventh for Fulham in the 08-09 season yep. and then fifth with Spurs in 12-13 I, I was surprised um when I went back and researched this, Dempsey was only at Spurs for one season. Am, yep. am I I'm the only one that was surprised about that? I thought it was at least two seasons he was at Spurs. But yeah, he then goes to the Sounders after one season at Spurs. But he, play, he played a decent amount in that fifth place finish season. It was such a weird, that move is so weird because he has such, he reaches such like heights with Fulham in, in starting regularly, scoring goals, uh, making that Europa League run. Then he moves to Tottenham and... It doesn't really like go, go well, but it doesn't go poorly either. I remember yeah. looking at his numbers and being like, "This is this was fine. This was this was totally fine." I think it's basically just that he goes from starting every single game and scoring a bunch to starting every, every now and then getting substitute minutes. But then Seattle just throw that money at him, and away he goes. He's never going to turn that down. But it is a weird blip in there that is yeah. not as bad as you remember, but certainly not necessarily a success either. It, it was also weird that he ended up at Tottenham because I think Liverpool had been trailing him for two transfer windows and it was kind of a Mudrick to Arsenal situation where everyone just thought he was going to go to Liverpool and then Spurs just came in at the last minute with the bigger offer. But um, yeah, strange that he was only at Spurs for one season. But I, yeah, I can't find anyone higher than Pulisic, Friedel or uh, Howard as a first choice goalkeeper. Was What was the highest Friedel finished with, with uh, Tottenham, Joe? Did you have that? Uh, I do not have that written down, no. Yep, so he finished fourth, fourth. Okay. in the 11th-12th season, played all 38 games for Spurs that season. All right. Uh, so I'd have him as like an honorable mention in there. He's on the list twice. Uh, Graham, did you have any answers for uh, the best-performing promoted team? Yeah, so if we're counting just on, just Premier League teams in the Premier League era, which goes back, obviously, to the early 90s. Uh, Newcastle United and Nottingham Forest, they hold the, the record for having the the best season as a newly promoted team. So they finished, they both finished third. So Newcastle finished third in 93-94. And in the very next season, Forest finished third in 94-95. Wow. 
There we go. Uh, do we do we think uh, Nottingham Forest are going to replicate that this time around? We still got some season to play. Forest Late could push. make a jump. Late push. Yeah, I mean, another they, forty maybe, signings uh, in the January window, and they're there. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I was going to say might, maybe another three hundred million in this transfer window, and they might get there. It's a bit light, if but yeah. Nottingham Forest found a way to sign Kylian Mbappe. How much further up the table do they finish? Well, does he get mm. in the team ahead of Brennan Johnson? That's a big question. That's, question. that's <laughs> a consideration, Graham. That's a consideration. I Let's would say just barely. They okay. they will finish. They're thirteenth right ninth. now. Okay, I'm going to say they'll finish ninth. So that would be yeah. Liverpool currently in ninth, eight points ahead of Forest. Yeah, I think Kylian Mbappe makes up eight points on his own. Yeah, it's. A, I'm sure some somebody who's way smarter than me could do the math and like actually figure out what the models say about that. But that feels right. Just it, I don't know. It sounds right. The Premier League table this season is so strange. Uh, on, on a bit of a tangent for a moment, it looks like a, a FIFA simulation of a season mm. uh, where you've got like Newcastle in third, Arsenal top, uh, Fulham in sixth, Brighton in seventh, Brentford in eighth, uh, then Liverpool and Chelsea. It, it, it's a weird season. It's a weird, weird there's season. E- there, there's even stuff like Aston Villa. My impression of Aston Villa is they're having a bad season mm-hmm. right now. They're 11. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> they're three points behind Chelsea. Wow. So it has been a really strange season so far. And then, like, the bottom bottom quarter, you've got Leicester in there, Wolves in there, West Ham, Everton. Not really teams that we expected yeah. to be in that conversation, necessarily. I keep forgetting that Leicester City are really in pretty deep trouble. You could see them going down this season, actually. Oh. But it's, it's, very, it's very tight down there. Premier League's a rough one. The Premier League is a rough one. Uh, Graham, one last question coming to you first uh, from Greg Lamb. With the next Men's World Cup being hosted by the U.S., Canada, and Mexico in 2026, what will the next three and a half years look like for CONCACAF? Will they hold the CONCACAF qualifying tournament with the remaining teams for one or two spots? Will the three hosts play an endless series of round-robin friendlies with one another? Do we even know? Uh, I will preempt and say, uh, answering the last question, I'm not sure that we do know. Uh, We could definitely speculate, (laughs) but I think right now we don't have a ton of concrete info about how the 2026 World Cup is going to work, how Mm. qualifying is going to work for certain confederations, one of them being CONCACAF. So it's kind of all on the table right now, I think. Yes, I'm glad I wasn't the only one who couldn't find anything rock solid here. Joe, just in, just before we start shooting off about this, did you find anything concrete on No, Concap no, not yet. Not the, yet. O- the only things that I found that are taken from a Gianni Infantino press conference he gave when he was somewhere in North America uh, was that the three hosts will qualify automatically. Uh, that was that was a thing that was up for some debate. Once you have tri-hosts, do you still have qualification? And I think if they had... The existing format with 30, or 32 teams, I don't know if they would because that basically leaves a half spot for CONCACAF. I think he then confirmed that CONCACAF will also have at least six spots. I've seen it listed yeah. as like six and two-thirds spots because of the playoffs, and you've got two different playoff routes. But I think if you've got at least six teams, three automatic qualifiers, that leaves three spots and then um, some playoffs on top of that. Yeah. Yeah, that was my reading of it as well. So they need to basically come up with a qualifying process that will allocate three automatic places and then a playoff spot for the Intercontinental playoff. I kind of hope they do it all in one go in some sort of tournament uh, yeah. format. I don't know if there's there's a free summer. Is summer 2025 free? I kind of lose gold track of what tournaments are getting. I would gold, uh, gold Cup 25. All right. right, okay. Well, no, there it is. So we make the Gold Cup 
every team in CONCACAF minus I know the USA, Canada, and Mexico can still play. Maybe they'll have their own little mini Gold Cup. Uh, but you get everybody in there. You bring them all to the United States. And then I don't know what the format is, but yeah, you end up with three teams and then the next two. A third of Antigua. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's, let's get them all together. Let's throw it in one random place and let's see what happens. Does a, does a, does a maximum of seven CONCACAF places, and this, maybe I'm speaking it no, ignorance like as an outsider it seems here. Like a lot. That seems like a lot of places for CONCACAF. I mean, yes, but then also like Comabo, I think now has six and a half for, lest we forget, 10 countries in Comabo. That feels like yeah. a lot. I mean, at the same yeah. time, all... Not all. A lot of them very good. Are it just good, sort of yeah. at that point it's just like just just give them all ten or just merge the federations. It really does feel like just merge North and South America and and let's uh, see what happens from there. There's ju- there's just no way to do the confederation no. allotment well. Like like people are going to be upset no matter what. I remember big outrage about you know you wait for still not having enough or you wait for having too many or common ball not having enough. You can make really compelling arguments on all sides here. It, it kind of just depends on whether you view the World Cup as a random sampling of countries from across the world, and that's why it's the World Cup, or if it's the World Cup because the best darn teams from all over the world are there. You know, if that's the case, then we should just be watching UEFA and Comabo fight it out to the death because that's where the best teams in the world are, frankly. You know, maybe, maybe there's quality in Africa and quality in North and Central America. There are good teams there, but on the whole, it's very clear that those are the top two confederations. Yeah, we, we don't really know what World Cup qualifying is going to look like. I would expect we're still going to wait a while before we find out. We do know some things that are happening in CONCACAF. So we mentioned the Gold Cup. There's a Gold Cup this summer. I would expect there will be a Gold Cup again in 2025. There are CONCACAF Nations League games coming up in March for the U.S. and, and for other countries as well. And then again in June will be the Final Four, a la you know, the, the, the competition we had. I think it was in Colorado and then finished in Las Vegas in 2021. So the U.S. could end up playing in that set of games you know, as far as what the U.S. will be doing in World Cup qualifying, we know even less about that. I would love to see, and, and you guys can tell me if this stuff is crazy, I'd love to see either the U.S., Mexico, and Canada play each other a few times during World Cup qualifying and just kind of do their own thing. Or, and this is probably what I'd prefer, I want to see the U.S. like guest in UEFA qualifying basically like Qatar did. I don't know if they could sneak into the group stages of, of UEFA qualifying, and maybe you could still do that and play Mexico and Canada because the timing is going to be different between the confederations. I just want to see the U.S. get games, and it seems like embedding yourself in UEFA qualifying or Comabo qualifying is a really good way to do that if you can buy your way in. All right, here's, here's a half-baked idea for you. Uh, genuinely just occurred to me, so I look forward to you all shredding it. But if we do have... Six and a half comparable teams qualifying, or six teams automatically. It feels pretty safe to say that like Brazil and Argentina are going to qualify comfortably. So if you're the United States, if you're CONCACAF, could you throw a ton of money at them to just schedule additional friendlies? Of like, are you going to play those two World Cup qualifiers? But then also you're going to play a friendly here in the U.S. and you make that into a competition of like the teams that are most likely to qualify easily. Mm. You're bringing to the U.S. and having them play uh, friendlies here and there. And so like the U.S. Yeah. gets Brazil one game, Mexico gets Argentina. Uh, I don't know who the third most likely to qualify out of South America would be. Let's say I want to say Colombia, but they didn't qualify this past World Cup. Uruguay, yeah. Uh, Oh, Uruguay, of course, yes, there we go. And then, like, Canada plays Uruguay. The next round of qualifying, you just rotate those. So now you've got six teams sort of semi-competing mm. in semi-competitive ways. I like yeah, it. I mean, Brazil famously never accept big fees for playing <laughs> friendlies around the world. It's not a thing they do. So 
This is no, the that, thing. That, money that talks, could be man. a route. Money talks. Yeah. I, I like Joe's idea of, of UEFA qualifying. So I just went back through to look at the groups for the last World Cup qualification in, in, in UEFA. And there were five groups with, with five uh, with only five teams. That's how Qatar were able to join one of the groups. They make it up to six. So the the difficulty would be, I don't think UEFA can admit the US without doing the same for Canada and Mexico. At least my brain tells me that would be unfair. As you say, money talks. Maybe the US yeah. pays more and yep. that's how they get in. But if you're putting three teams in there, then yeah, I guess that would be feasible. You could have those three CONCACAF teams being involved in, uh, in UEFA qualifying like Qatar were. And it, it seems, it does seem like U.S. soccer knows the importance of scheduling big games. It, it, there have been reports about Germany, uh, a friendly against Germany being scheduled at some point. I don't, may, maybe that's the end of 2023. I forget the year. The Copa America reports are, are still sort of swirling. Now, it, it doesn't seem like that's a done deal, despite a lot of folks talking about it as it is a done deal, including, including Tyler, Tyler Adams. Adams. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know. I still don't know what's going on there, but. That would obviously be big if the U.S. could pull that off. Again, still undecided and undetermined. But I think U.S. soccer sees how necessary that's going to be. And I'm hoping that they'll either have the financial might to do some some buying their way into different competitions or that they'll be extremely rigorous and creative in how they go about doing this. I like extremely uh, vigorous and creative. That that would work for me. That's not necessarily always U.S. soccer or CONCACAF's brand. No, it's not. So we'll not, see what it? happens there. Um, in terms of things that happened that are still weird to me that they happened, Qatar just quietly doing UEFA qualifying and no one really talking about it. Like, I know it's just friendlies and they're just kind of following behind in the format, but that's still such an odd thing that happened that no one talked about that is almost entirely fueled by money. Like, there's no way that was UEFA just saying, yeah, we want you guys to get some reps ahead of the World Cup. I I wonder how many zeros (laughs) were on that check before that deal was I couldn't tell you a single result that they got in any of those friendlies. I think they were in, were they in Portugal's group? that the was that Serbia and Portugal group I, think, I don't know why perhaps, my but... brain thinks they were in a group with Lithuania I assume that's not true but I can't get that out maybe Bulgaria I cannot get it out of my head so Lithuania were in that group with Portugal and Serbia so uh, if that's right then they we're would have played right. I'm googling yeah. it but I'm googling slow so well it worked help. really really well as we all know <laughs> Qatar won all three of their group stage games at the World Cup they were really Massive good success yeah so maybe that isn't the way to go for the U.S. <laughs> well, if that is the way they end up going, uh, we will certainly discuss it on uh, the Tuesday show. As I said, we welcome any of your questions about U.S. soccer. Uh, but we could get into pro row. We could get into the structure of U.S. soccer, pay to play. But then also U.S. men, U.S. women, youth teams, whatever it may be. We've got the Olympics coming up. We've got the Women's World Cup. Plenty to be discussed for now. Graham Ruthven, thank you for helping me answer, or basically doing the heavy lifting, you and Joe, of answering uh, those listener <laughs> questions today. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Uh, Joe Lowry, thank you for doing the heavy lifting and answering those questions today. Yeah, thanks, Taylor. And listeners, thank you for listening to Joe and Graham do that heavy lifting. We very much appreciate it, and we will talk to you again soon. 